there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. In Isaiah 32:17, we read, "The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever." The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. And we all know, if we look back on our spiritual lives, that the times when we have been most obedient have been the times which ultimately have led to joy, even though obedience often leads to suffering. Let's not forget that. Suffering is a part of our spiritual training, part of God's curriculum. But we also know, and probably it's easier to remember this, that the times when we have been disobedient have led to mis misery. And don't we see an illustration of that in our little children? When a little child is being disobedient, he's really not happy. He's quite miserable. The next brother to me, I'm number, th number two of six, and six in the family, I have four brothers, my next brother's only 13 months younger than I am, and he, he was the most mischievous of, of all the kids in our family, I guess, and my mother had more struggles with disciplining him. But um, he, he just had a way of just getting away with all kinds of things that the rest of us couldn't get away with. And my mother would often say, he is tuning up for a spanking. <laughs> meaning that what he was doing right now was not really bad enough to get a spanking, but he was just doing a whole lot of little needling things that just were irritating everybody. And so he would tune up, and sometimes this would take a couple of days, over the several days he would be tuning up for a spanking, and he was getting more and more hard to deal with and more and more miserable and making the family miserable, and so of course my mother would eventually administer the spanking, or my father would, and it was just like a sunrise after that. I mean, he just turned into the sweetest little boy you ever saw. And maybe some of you have a child like that, and don't say you have a strong-willed child. You do not have a strong-willed child. You have a stubborn and rebellious child. Because strength of will was demonstrated in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, not my will but thine be done. And when your child finally, after much struggle, complies with your will, then he is beginning to learn the lesson of strength of will. But I've chosen this scripture because it does illustrate so wonderfully, so succinctly, that we are not meant to be surprised we are meant to maintain an even and calm spirit, no matter what surprising things may happen, and to accept whatever the lot may be that God has assigned to us. When peace 
like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Two very different conditions of life, aren't they? Peace and sorrow, and yet there is a sense in which there can be peace in the midst of sorrow when we learn to say, yes, Lord, I know you're in charge, I know you love me, and I know that this thing has not happened by mistake. Is it well with your soul this afternoon? Are you astonished or surprised that God would allow a certain thing to happen? We wonder why in the world God allows this and that to happen, and of course it's none of our business why. He has given us many clues in the scripture that suffering is required, it is necessary, the storms are necessary. I read that the uh, eucalyptus trees of Australia need forest fires in order to survive. And these raging forest fires seem to be the most frightening of, of any kind of forest fire because eucalyptus is full of oil and it makes the trees literally explode and it races very quickly through a whole area. And when my husband and I were in Australia, we drove through many, many miles of burned out eucalyptus forests, but you could see that already there were little shoots coming up. And I read later that it was required for the survival of a eucalyptus forest that there be fire. And there are certain kinds of plants in the desert that require wind, terrible wind, which strips them in order for them to survive. And these are metaphors of spiritual truths. Was your soul at peace this morning when you woke up? Was there anxiety, dread, anticipation of evil? Well, who is in charge? Who rules the winds and the waves of life? This little testimony from a poor Methodist woman of the 18th century whose name is not given, I go back to again and again. It just uh, brings peace to my soul and it reminds me of a dear old lady that used to work for my mother. She was a lady in her 70s. She refused to even think of herself as old, not for any silly reasons that most of us women have nowadays that we don't like to admit our age or anything like that. But she just felt that the Lord had so many things for her to do and she helped us. Her name was Mrs. Kershaw. Well, this lady's name was not mentioned, but she's a woman from the 18th century. And this, is, this was her testimony. I do not know when I have had happier times in my soul than when I have been sitting at work with nothing before me but a candle and a white cloth and hearing no sound but that of my own breath with God in my soul and heaven in my eye. I rejoice in being exactly what I am, a creature capable of loving God and who as long as God lives must be happy. I get up and look for a while out of the window and gaze at the moon and the stars, the work of an almighty hand. I think of the grandeur of the universe and then sit down and think myself one of the happiest beings in it. Sitting there with her sewing, you know, 100 years ago, when a woman spoke of her work, she was usually referring to sewing. 
that was the word they used. They carried their work with them when they went anywhere. They always had a little sewing to do if they got delayed anywhere. And of course, I also have some illustrations from Radio Mail for whatever I'm going to talk about. This is from a woman who weighed two pounds and two ounces when she was born. And because of receiving too much oxygen, she was totally blind. She says, my parents never gave up. They made me do chores around the house and I did not always get my own way. Mom used to tell other kids that I see with my hands. My parents love the Lord and have taught me to love him too. I rise up and call them blessed. 41 years later, I find myself being a mother with four children of my own and a husband who is just right for me. I can play several musical instruments, have written a few songs, and I sing in nursing in two nursing homes. Being blind has been discouraging at times. But then someone comes along to tell me how much of a help I have been to him. Every day I remember that I belong to Jesus and want to follow him no matter where he leads. Isaiah 42 verse 16 says that he leads the blind in a way they do not know and will turn their darkness into light. If God will do that for me, he will surely lead and guide all of us if we only let him. Now listen to this very carefully. My job is not to figure out why I can't see, but my job is to follow Jesus. I can concentrate on just that one thing instead of many little things. He is el camino, la verdad y la vida, the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know why she wrote it in Spanish, but there it is. And I'm going to make the most of it. I am no super person, but just someone following an infinite creator. Yes, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and she signs it, joy in Christ. And I'm reminded of Fanny Crosby, who at the age of nine wrote this little poem. You may remember that Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of six weeks by a doctor's mistake. And Fanny Crosby was the author of about 8,000 hymns. Among them, uh, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, uh, To God Be the Glory, Great Things He Has Done. There's just many, many hymns that are very familiar to me from Fanny Crosby. When she was nine years old, she wrote, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented, I will be. Notice the word resolved. It is a choice, isn't it? How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind. I cannot, nor I won't. Nine-year-old child. Well, I've read that, I suppose, more than once on Gateway to Joy. And I had a letter from a prisoner who paraphrased Fanny Crosby's poem in this way. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell, contented, I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm chained, I cannot, and I won't. A radical change in attitude comes with acceptance, trust, obedience. 
Now, I want you to think about two things. You can put these in your notes if you're looking for two points. The present moment is number one, and a simple heart. The present moment. Now, who exactly is in charge of this present moment? There's a sense, of course, in which I am. But it's very small by comparison with the sense that we have, which we know to be perfectly true, that God is totally in charge of every moment of every day. Amy Carmichael wrote a little poem, I see thee thread the minutes of my hours. I love that idea. God is threading the minutes of my hours. He knows what, what each minute holds and what the next minute is going to hold. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, we don't know who, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. I believe it was my father that was the, the one who wrote that. My father was an editor and a writer and had a little magazine, and I haven't been able to find that there was any other source. If someone can correct me, please do. But uh, that's a wonderful, wonderfully peace-giving assurance, isn't it? We don't know what the future holds. We don't know whether we're going to go home, get home this afternoon or whether we're going to get to California this evening or what, but God does. So the present moment is the moment which God has given to me now. This is what I have. I don't have any moment that's past. That belongs to God. I don't have any moment in the future. God is already there. Did you ever stop to think about that? With him, there is no time. He is the eternal, the infinite. And so God is already in the future. He knows exactly what's going to happen because he's in charge of that moment. Is your attitude one of acceptance or of dissatisfaction? This morning, were you dissatisfied with your wardrobe, shall we say? Just for one little question. Um, probably the majority of us women are dissatisfied because we have too many things and you don't know which one to pick up. And of course, who's looking? You know, who cares? Is there anybody in this room that could possibly remember what so-and-so had on last Tuesday? And do you think anybody's gonna remember what you had on? They're not going to. We are, I was given a great deal of peace when I was a college student because I was very worried about my looks. And an older friend, she was three years older than I, and when you're 17 or 18 years old, you know, three years is a very big difference. And so I looked up to this woman as a spiritual example. She was a very beautiful woman, but I was complaining to her about my looks or something or my hairdo or who knows what. And she just sort of put her hand on my shoulder and she said, who's looking? <laughs> we think that we're so noticeable. <laughs> But when it comes to that wardrobe, when you buy a new dress or a new skirt or a new pair of breeches, do you get rid of the old one? Well, if you don't, of course, your closet is getting so jammed that you can hardly get anything in it or out of it. So one way of 
simplifying your life and clarifying things and making your, making your life easier for, easier for yourself is to just get rid of things. Well, what's this got to do with spiritual things? I think it has a great deal to do with it. There's a, a verse of a hymn. The hymn begins, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. And one stanza says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Our ordered lives. Dissatisfaction with, your, with what you possess, dissatisfaction with where you live or where you work, dissatisfaction with how you look in the mirror or how much you weighed the last time you got on the scales. There are things we can do something about and there are things we can't do anything about. But what is God saying to you in this moment? now what is he teaching you now and let's remember that through every event that crosses my will or my preferences here's the will of god and here is my will and whenever the will of god crosses the will of man somebody has to die so when your preference is not honored when your opinion is not listened to, when plans fall apart and you're disappointed about something, what's God saying to you? Is he teaching you? Are you willing to be meek enough to be teachable? I do believe that meekness means teachability. Jesus said, come to me, you who are tired and overburdened and I will give you rest. But there are three things you have to do if you want that rest. Number one is to come to him. Number two is to take his yoke upon you. And a yoke is heavy. And a yoke forces you to move in harmony with the other one who is yoked. And I believe that Jesus is using the metaphor of a double ox yoke, where two oxen are forced to move in harmony by this heavy wooden yoke that's on the back of their necks. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, and remember he takes the other end of it, the other side, and learn of me. Come, take my yoke, learn. For I, he says, am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus was gentle and humble in heart. Don't ever confuse meekness with weakness. There's a world of difference. Teachability. It is here in this present moment that God wants to sanctify you. And what is God's object in our lives? It's to make us holy. Here's a whole room full of women. If God were to be allowed by our will and our submission and our surrender to him to make every one of us in this room holy, it would transform the state of Iowa. There would be just an astonishing change. But it's a very laborious process, isn't it, to be made holy. Do you want to be holy? I ask you that this afternoon. Is it your desire to be like Jesus?
Well, it is in this moment that sanctification happens. Here is where God is teaching us. Now, how is he teaching us? He is teaching us in every event of our lives, in every responsibility that we have. Now, here's a woman who didn't really like to do laundry. She didn't think that was very much fun. And she says, it has revolutionized my life to see myself as a creator in my home and to strive for beauty, to elevate the daily tasks into acts of worship. And this is a concept which has so deeply influenced my own life that it took me many, many years before I understood it. And I am ashamed to think how slowly I'm learning it. But I am learning that literally everything in my life, every task, every responsibility, is meant to be an offering to God, an act of worship. When I peel an onion, when I clean the bathroom, when I go to the grocery store, which I don't do very often because I have a wonderful husband who does most of that for me, uh, when I sit at my computer, which is probably the next to the hardest work I do, the writing, these are meant to be offerings to Jesus Christ. And so this woman says, to elevate the daily tasks into acts of worship. This includes all the senses, smell, taste, touch, sound, and hearing, and so much beauty. Somehow, she says, I had got it in my head that I just had to love laundry for laundry's sake. And if I could not will myself to love it, then I was failing the Lord. Now you're looking at a woman who is one of those really weird freaks who really loves housework. Because to me, housework is so easy compared with sitting down and, and writing. When I do housework, I know exactly what to do. I know how to do it. I know how long it's going to take. And I know what the results are going to be. Never mind that nobody's ever going to notice the results. They will only notice it if you don't do it, right? But this woman was thinking that she had to learn to love the laundry for the laundry's sake. And I could not will myself to love it. Then I must be failing the Lord. But now, she says, I see that there is always opportunity to redeem tasks that bring me little joy in and of themselves by being creative and seeing life as art or as the challenge of sacramental living. Now there's a word that's gonna stop some of you cold and you'll think, what on earth is she talking about? In the broad sense, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. And all of us, I would assume, are familiar with what we call the sacrament of communion. You have bread and you have wine, or grape juice, depending on what church you go to. And we all know that those are visible signs, visible, tangible, edible signs of an invisible reality, the tremendous truth of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. But if you can just try to realize that all of life is meant to be a visible sign of an invisible reality, who I am, what I am, what I do, what I believe, these are rev revelations of 
an invisible reality. So she speaks of the challenge to sacramental living. Now, just don't get too confused or upset here. She asks, do you share my joy, Elizabeth? And of course, I wrote back and said, yes, 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 a thousand times, yes. And she says, to redeem the laundry, I have made a little ritual of having a cup of tea and listening to a teaching tape while I fold and praying, isn't this the sweetest thing, for my grandma and my great-grandma who had beautiful white laundry and the art of folding clothes. <laughs> so I assume that this lady has learned to love not laundry for laundry's sake, but to learn to love a job which is required of her for Jesus' sake. Now, what kind of work do you think Jesus turned out when he was working in a carpenter shop, as we assume he did under his foster father, Joseph? The Bible, of course, doesn't tell us that, but we only know that for 30 years he was invisible, pretty much. But I dare say, if Jesus did work as a carpenter, he worked thoroughly, faithfully, gladly, and beautifully. He would not have turned out a careless bench or a sloppy, crooked table. Now you can think of your own little ritual, whatever it might take, in order to help you to remember that changing that baby's diapers, cleaning up that mess, folding the laundry, doing the ironing, cleaning the house, cleaning out your closet. These are things which are assigned to us, aren't they? They're part of God's curriculum, and they are part of a spiritual curriculum. And I had to learn those lessons at home. My parents were very, very strong in reminding us that the way we did our homework, and the way we practiced the piano, and the way we kept our rooms were a revelation of our desire to be Christian, to be pleasing to God, because those are the areas where it matters the most. We can talk religion. We can sound good and look good, but it's in those tiny things. And that lesson was reviewed many, many times after I left home and went to a boarding school. And the headmistress of the boarding school reiterated that day after day don't go around with a Bible under your arm if you didn't sweep under the bed. <laughs> what has it got to do with the spiritual curriculum? Everything. Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least, I will make him ruler over many things. It's the little things. Now let's think about this simple heart. A simple heart accepts God's assignment. And you know, life gets terribly complicated for most of us, and we live in a very complicated world. I can't get over the array of choices that we have. That's one of the things that's wrong with America. We have too many choices. And when I got a new computer to replace the one that I'd been using for 12 years, it blew my mind to see what the things that came up on that screen. And I thought, I don't want all this. All I want is a word processor. I don't want anything else. 
well, you can't buy such a thing anymore. You have to have all these other things, and you can't go to the grocery store and easily find the cornflakes. You have to go through 89 different kinds of cereal, and you see these yuppie mothers with their very well-dressed coming in at 5.30 in the evening with their two little children that they've just picked up, and they're saying to the three-year-old and the one-year-old, what kind of cereal do you want, honey? <laughs> as if the child has any basis on which to make that kind of a decision. I want a simpler life because I want a simple heart. And the simpler my heart is, the simpler my life is going to become. And back to that dear, sweet lady that worked in our home, Mrs. Kershaw. Never have I seen a more shining, radiant example of a simple heart like the Methodist woman with her candle and her piece of white cloth. Mrs. Kershaw had no agenda of her own. She came every day to our house just to make us happy. And all she'd think about when she came in there was, what should I do first? What can I do for these people? What do they need? How can I help them? How can I make them happy? And she not only did all kinds of things for my mother and for us kids, but she was wonderfully sweet to a very difficult, old, deaf step-grandmother who was upstairs and never came out of a room. And Mrs. Kershaw, who was only a few years younger than my deaf grandmother and was herself stone deaf, Mrs. Kershaw, you can imagine the conversations between those two old ladies. I mean, it was like ships that pass in the night. There was absolutely no connection. But she never tired of just going, I mean, she, she never stopped smiling. And she cheered that poor old lady many, many times. She had a simple heart. A simple heart is a heart where God is. A heart where God is. And here's another quotation from another book. What had she done? Absolutely nothing. But radiant smiles, beaming good humor, the tact of divining what everyone felt and everyone wanted, told that she had got out of herself and learned to think of others. To me, this is a description of Mrs. Kershaw, although the person that wrote it was 100 years ago. She had got out of herself and learned to think of others, so that at one time it showed itself in deprecating the quarrel, which lowering brows and raised tones already showed to be impending, by sweet words. In other words, when somebody was about to explode, this lady's sweet words calmed the troubled waters. At another, by smoothing an invalid's pillow, at another by soothing a sobbing child, at another by humoring and softening a father who had returned weary and ill-tempered from the irritating cares of business. None but she saw those things. None but a loving heart could see them. A simple heart is a heart where God is. That was the secret of her heavenly power the one who will be found in trial capable of great acts of love is always the one who is doing considerate small things. Small things that very likely nobody is going to notice 
but they would notice if you didn't do them. Small things for which you're not going to be thanked. Whatever my lot. Mrs. Kershaw was a very poor widow. She lived in a miserable, big old empty house with hardly any furniture. She lived alone. As I said, she was completely deaf. And a living example to us every day of what it means to accept God's assignments and God's appointments. My God shall supply all your need. And sometimes we hammer away at God's door telling God what we need. I've got to have this. Can't go on any longer without that. And just remember your Heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows exactly what you need and what you don't need. We think we need a lot of things we don't need. And he's promised to supply all of them. So we can have a simple heart resting completely in the conviction that he is in charge. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. And now here's a verse from 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. Very interesting verse, one that I don't hear many sermons about. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11. Lead a quiet life. Is it your ambition to lead an exciting life? Probably. But we're told to change our attitude, reverse the attitude, and make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. We don't have to do everything that everybody tells us we have to do. We don't have to read this and buy that and experience the other thing and go to that place. We can lead a quiet life. And my husband and I really do work on this. Now, of course, we're very busy when we're traveling, but we're home about two-thirds of the time. And we do make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. And that hits me right here, right between the eyes, because I am by nature a busybody. <laughs> I really am. And I am ashamed of that, but it's true. I, I was accused of being a terrible gossip when I went to that boarding school that Christian headmistress saw right through me. And she told me I was a gossip, and it was true. And it's still a struggle for me to mind my own business. But you know what? The older I get, and I thank God for old age, the fewer things there are in this world that are my business. That just, that really does give me great relief to realize there are very few things that are my business. As one of my brothers says when I will ask him a question about, well, what do, you, what do you think about this or the other thing? His answer will often be, that is a question about which no view at all is required of me. And of course that irritates me when he says that. <laughs> No view at all is required of us about most things. You know, there really are not very many things that are our business. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Work with your hands. 
let's remember that working with our hands is probably more fulfilling in the long run than any intellectual work you'll ever be given the privilege of doing. These women that want to get out of doing all this stuff that you have to do with your hands at home and do something, quote, fulfilling, most of them find that it is a sucked out lemon. <laughs> If my heart, if God is ruling in my heart, then what a relief it must be for God, if I may use such a term, what a relief it must be for God to find one heart that is always ready to receive what he wants to give, one heart that is always in tune with him. Now back to the question of suffering, and I heard the song that was sung when you don't understand, you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. I don't know what chisel God may be having to use to shape you into the image of his son. But in an old book which has taught me many things in the spiritual world, I read this, the cruel chisel destroys a stone with each cut. What the stone suffers by repeated blows is no less than the shape the mason is making of it. And I'm reminded of Romans 8:29, which follows the verse that probably most of you know very well, Romans 8:28. everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. But the purpose is in verse 29, which is that we should be shaped to the image of his son. Is that what you want? You have to receive whatever lot he assigns. He doesn't want us to be surprised. This is what I'm working on, he's saying. I am chiseling you because it takes a hammer blow and it takes chiseling and it takes filing to make an image, doesn't it? And if he is going to shape you and me into the image of Christ, do not be surprised that there will be the hammer blows and the chippings of the chisel and the raspings of the file. So back to this old writer, what the stone suffers by repeated blows is no less than the shape the mason is making of it. Should I ask the stone, what is happening to you? Don't ask me. All I know is that for my part, and this is the stone talking, there is nothing for me to know or do, only to remain steady under the hand of my master and to love him and suffer him to work out my destiny. It is for him to know how to achieve this. I know neither what he is doing or why. I only know that he is doing what is best and most perfect. And I suffer each cut of the chisel as though it were the best thing for me. Each cut of the chisel is the best thing for me. Suppose your feelings get hurt. Such a little thing, but something that can upset you for weeks at a time because somebody stepped on your proverbial toes or you didn't get the credit for something that you did and somebody else got it. He is doing what is best and most perfect. 
and I suffer each cut of the chisel as though it were the best thing for me, even though, to tell the truth, each blow is my idea of ruin, destruction, and defacement. Do you feel as though the thing that has happened in your life is just ruined things, just ruined everything? Something irremediable? God is totally in charge. He is a sovereign Lord. Are you able to say, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul? There's another quotation, which I don't seem to find what happened here. Oh, I don't know what happened. I hate to tell you, I can't find it. I thought I had it up here. You can tell how organized I am, can't you? Well, it was along the same lines as the stone, the chipping of the stone. It was another metaphor uh, from, another, another stand, from another standpoint. But I can look back over my life and thank God for the hammer blows. As you know, you know some of the hammer blows. I told you about the murder of that man who was helping me with the language. That was certainly a hammer blow, and it was the first of a series of hammer blows. And I was still a brand new missionary, not yet a year in Ecuador when that happened. And again and again, the Lord has administered these hammer blows and the chippings of the chisel and the raspings of the file. And if I look up and say to him, well, Lord, what are you doing? He says, I've already told you. I explained it. Do you pray thy will be done? And then are you surprised when he starts answering that prayer? Do not be surprised. He has taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if I'm going to pray, Lord, thy will be done on earth, I have to be willing for his will to be done in me in order that I may participate with that high and holy work that God is doing here on earth. How can I say, thy will be done on earth, and then add to it, but be careful what you do with me, Lord, or don't let that happen to me? The chippings of the chisel and the raspings of the file. Once again, Romans 8. What a marvelous chapter. What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And then skipping down, to verse 36, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Don't be surprised. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can, will be able to separate us 
and the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God bless you. Now I do have, that's, thank you, but we don't need to take time for that. I appreciate it. I do have one question that was handed to me. In Olive Fleming's book, she describes the going back to Palm Beach. Olive Fleming is one of the widows of one of the five, is the widow of one of the five men that was killed in Ecuador in 1956, along with my husband, Jim. And she wrote a book that came out about three years ago, I think it's called uh, Unfolding Destinies. So this person wants to know about her going back to Palm Beach, the place where the men were killed, and hearing the story of the music and bright lights following the deaths of the five missionaries. Did you hear anything about that? Olive was there talking with some of the men who had part in the killing. And of course, Olive doesn't speak Alka, but she was being interpreted, I suppose, by Rachel Saint at that time. And she heard that after the men had been killed, that the Indians saw lights in the, in the sky and heard beautiful singing. And Olive's question is, did I know anything about that? Well, I lived with the Alcas for two years, and I have three tape recordings telling me about that day in January, on January the 8th, 1956. Two of them were recorded for me by men who had done the spearing, and one of them by a woman who was an eyewitness to everything that happened. And my answer is no, I did not hear anything at all about music and lights in the sky. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.